Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And it isn't often that I can say a guest has changed the world, or at least the cinematic world, but I'd argue my guest is one of the most important, if not the most important, independent producers uh, since the 1990s, one of the very few producers whose name alone denotes quality and a streak of subversiveness. Uh, among the many films that she's produced or executive produced are, brace yourself for this, Poison, Swoon, Go Fish, Safe, Kids, I Shot Andy Warhol, Happiness, Office Killer, Velvet Goldmine, Boys Don't Cry, I could just go on and on, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, Far From Heaven, it's amazing. And now, in recent years, she's done a lot of TV, including the Sundance original series, This Close, which is amazing. The Showtime adaptation of Ira Glass, This American Life, and Todd Haynes, Mildred Pierce. Wow, Christine Vachon, it is a super honor to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to The Outcast. Oh, my pleasure, thank you. So when I read that list of titles, which every LGBT filmmaker has seen most of them, if not all of them, what kind of comes up uh, to you? Is it just kind of old hat or is it, are you even impressed by your own work? So I, you know, I don't look backwards very much. I really, I really try and look forward and think about what we have coming up and, and what we're trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes when I have to go back, sometimes I'll go back and look at an old movie. For example, I'll go look at the credits of Hedwig or something to see who the costume designer was or who, you know, just to, you know, for reference. And then I'm always stunned how far down the list I have to go <laughs> at, at IMDb to find it. Uh, and then it's those moments sometimes where I'm like, wow, this is a lot of movies. It's a lot of movies. We had John Cameron yeah. Mitchell on the show. And uh, he's, it's very interesting kind of what he's been doing. Like he branched out into, into podcasts. He did the oh, Anthem yeah, Homunculus, yeah. which was so interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things I do want to get into, and we can touch talk a bit about it now, is, you know, where are things going? Because certainly coming up in kind of the new queer cinema and just like the independent cinema boom of like the late 80s going through the 90s, um, was was its own kind of culture. Um, it was really, I was at NYU uh, in the early to mid 90s. It was super exciting to be near the Angelica. Um, I saw you on countless panels uh, with countless movies and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but now it's like independent film is a very different animal and it has very different, you know, distribution models. Well, that's true. I think what's also happened is um, television or streaming or whatever we want to call it, whatever we want to, however we want to assign its identity has over the years become much less risk averse than traditional theatrical filmmaking and even non-traditional theatrical filmmaking. So that kind of middle ground, you know, those movies that were made for a certain kind of budget by auteur filmmakers uh, are kind of fewer and far between. And what they'll look like when the pandemic is over or when the pandemic, I don't know if the pandemic will ever be over, but when we've shifted into some other kind of of relationship with with how we consume culture and media, which I hope will happen. I mean, you know, I hope we are going to be going back to the cinema in the near future, but, you know, I have no crystal ball. But anyway, all of that aside, it doesn't, that that's the big issue, but it's still the, the sort of smaller issue, not smaller, but maybe the issue we're not examining as closely is the fact that, that a lot of those stories were, were becoming 
you know, more compelling on the smaller screen anyway, because they were allowed to, you know, to have, you know, unlikable heroes and ambiguous endings and all those things that you probably still think about, uh, you know, from those, from those, you know, glorious movies of the 90s. It's funny that you bring up auteur filmmakers, uh, you know, the auteur theory. Um, who was it that, uh, Saris, that was the one that, that pushed that originally, or am I misremembering? Oh, I don't know, or some Frenchman. <laughs> but it's funny because you're a producer. You are not a director. You have not been a writer, but as a producer, you have had an indelible mark on, on all of these films. You can look at this body of work, even though it's done by lots and lots of different filmmakers. Your imprint is very much on these. Like, do you ascribe to that kind of auteur kind of philosophy? Look, I think that... I, and when I say I, I sort of use the royal I because I talk about, I mean, killer films. Um, I think we're extraordinary enablers. I think we really are able to, we're able to identify talent and we work very hard at creating uh, situations, environments, uh, etc., where, where um, filmmakers can do their best work. And that's a big deal. I mean, I'm not, I, that's nothing to sneeze at. But I also don't want to claim authorship over any of the works that we've produced. I mean, I feel a sense of ownership often. I feel a sense of like, we made that. We made that happen. And sometimes, you know, I can take a movie and really look at it and tell that, that moment where we, it suddenly clicked into place because of, um, because we convinced an actor or because we, um, you know, we con convinced a financier or we brought an element to the financier that convinced them or what have you. But that doesn't mean that those are my visions, you know. I would never take that away from the extraordinary creative people we work with. But it's very interesting because, like, you know, there's, if you read anything about filmmaking, you can't, avoid the concept of a creative producer, which is a producer that does exactly what you're talking about. You, oh, yeah. you, oh, you yeah. see this vision and you're like, who are the best elements to bring to this? And certainly the filmmakers you work with have benefited greatly from this, uh, not to least of which is uh, Todd Haynes, who you've basically been with his entire career. Yep. And he's yep. an amazing, amazing filmmaker. Um, but I, when I was doing my research, uh, you have an even longer history than that. You were an assistant editor on Partying Glances, one of my favorite, favorite LGBT movies ever. Yes. My goodness. What was that like? Well, you know, you have to remember this was, you know, Parting Glances was made in a very, at the time it didn't seem like it, but if you sort of talk about it right now in a very unorthodox way, I mean, well, first of all, to give a little context at that time, it felt very much like you either made extremely experimental anti-narrative movies or you made Hollywood movies. And this idea of a kind of personal cinema that was maybe a little in between or, or you know, that borrowed heavily from both just wasn't something I was very familiar with. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. And I feel like, you know, when you really look at the history of cinema, you know, some form of what we call independent film has been around for a long time. But, you know, as, as generations do, everyone thinks they've discovered something for the first time. So in the mid-80s, when people like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee were making their first movies, to me, 
and Betty Gordon as well. She was also a big, you know, she was a mentor to me at, at, at one point. Variety, right? That's right, that, which I was a PA on. I think I basically brought, you know, the coffee into the mixing studio. It's but an amazing film. It's on Criterion Channel. Everyone needs to go see that. That's, yeah. a, that's one of those movies that you might not have heard of, and it's just so great. So this idea that you could make a movie that was that personal and felt that kind of, I don't know, idiosyncratic or outside of the kind of storytelling that, um, that you know, Hollywood was doing, but still needed production, needed, like, you know, had a lot of those same narrative elements, like a production designer, a costume designer, etc., that helped build what the character and the narrative was. So all is a long-winded way of saying, uh, Bill Sherwood shot Parting Glances in pieces, he would raise money, shoot a piece, cut it together, raise some more money. Uh, the film had a very polished look. Um, I uh, was the assistant editor, which meant he had a Steenbeck in his Upper West Side apartment, which was the apartment of the two guys whose names are have escaped me right now. Is it Michael the, and Robert? I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but that yeah, does okay. sound right. So anyway, <laughs> their apartment was his apartment. He totally pulled from something that I, I teach my own students all the time, which is like, use what you have, you know? Um, so there were certain people who invested in the movie who got to play parts in the film, which is another thing he did. <laughs> Obviously, the movie will be forever known in many ways for the fact that I think it was, if not Steve Buscemi's first part, one of his first parts. Yeah. So to say I wasn't the assistant editor, in some ways is generous and not generous because... You know, I would go to his apartment at midnight because I had a day job and he was shooting all night usually. And I would sink the dailies and do whatever little chores he asked me to do. And then he would come home from filming at about 4 or 5 a.m. and we'd watch stuff together. And obviously it was extraordinarily, um, you know, it was an incredible learning experience for me. But then, you know, one night I'd come in and he'd say oh, you're not going to be at the Steenbeck tonight. We don't have enough extras in the party scene. So you're, you're coming to Brooklyn. Are you in so, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, my I'm gosh. A, I'm the that. one uh, who can't stop looking at the camera <laughs> and, uh, and has a mullet. But that probably describes half the lesbians in the movie. But that is, that is, I have know. to watch it again now because I had no idea. You, you, I'm pretty easy to spot. Once you know, I'm pretty easy to spot. Bill was an extraordinarily generous person in terms of his experience and his process, etc. We got very close. Um, I spent a lot of time with him at the end, uh, which is, was a very you know defining experience for me. When the movie first came out and went to the Sundance Film Festival, I was a little dismissive of it and Longtime Companion because I was a little like, you know, you have to understand, I was in my mid-twenties, I was a punk rocker, I was like, these movies are so bourgeois, you know, <laughs> this isn't my experience, right. you know. But of course, as the years have gone on, I've gained a newfound respect for both, for both films, but especially Parting Glances, because it felt particularly against all odds. Bill figured out a path to get that movie made, and I can't tell you the number of people who've said to me, I moved to New York because of that film. Wow. You know, like, because it showed me for the first time that there was a life I could have, you know, and it managed to be, I remember Bill was so, 
like I'm not like the reason why we never mention AIDS is because I don't want to date the movie. Right. Who knows what'll happen in, you know, 20 years, you know? So anyway, it was, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that I, you know, that I got to have that experience and that I got to spend time with them. I always thought that you were part of the team that made Superstar, but am I in there? No. No, I mean, I, I, because of the experience I had had with Bill, I helped Todd in the edit room. Oh, okay. Because I'd prepared for a mix before. Right. Uh, and, and on variety. So I'd done both of those things. So I understood how you prepped for a sound mix. So I helped him. So I think I have a thanks to credit. <laughs> and, you know, in my defense, I have helped keep the movie, you know, alive. I got it remastered. But... I can't claim credit for producing it. But it's, uh, it, it's one of those movies that every LGBT filmmaker I know has seen, despite the fact you cannot get it legally still, which is just un- unbelievable. And no, it's, and but it's, you can, it's like a whack-a-mole on yeah, exactly. um, uh, YouTube. You just, it's like, just keep trying, it pops up. <laughs> and so. it's fantastic. I mean, between that and Dottie Gets Spanked, it's undeniable that Todd Haynes showed e- enormous talent just from the beginning. And that was your first feature film credit, uh, Poison, which was yes. a, an absolute landmark of LGBT cinema. What, I mean, I know that was done in super, super low budget, like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but what was that like shooting that? Did you know that it was going to, I mean, no, but I assume you don't know that it's going to be like a landmark. But. No, of course you don't know if it's going to be a landmark, but you know, I also really subscribe to the notion that no one ever tries to make a bad movie. I mean, we all are trying to make the movie that is going to live forever. We, you know, even if it's, you know, Weekend at Bernie's too, you know, it's like we're all, that's what we're all trying to do as producers. So um, funnily enough, you know, and I attribute some of this to my co-producer on Poison, Lauren Zelaznik, who had actually uh, worked, I had already worked on a number of low budget movies at that point. and not just indies. I mean, I'd worked on New Line horror movies. I'd worked on music videos. So I understood production. I understood, like, what that, you know, you had a DP and you had a lighting department. You had a, a grip department and then you had a, a production designer. I understood what that all meant. And Lauren had worked on bigger budget stuff. But at the end of the day, the one thing you learn when you work on big budget and low budget is it's all kind of the same. The same stuff has to happen. So Poison was not shot by the seat of our pants. It was shot very organized. We had a real crew. We didn't have any money. We called in a ton of favors. People were getting paid very little, but they were getting, you know, they were getting paid. They were getting fed. So it didn't feel, you know, I guess it felt a little in between. It didn't feel like it was one of those, like, run and gun let your camera crew be your extras, but it also, although that's the thing, I was the uh, AD on Poison as well as the producer, and it just never occurred to me that we should have anyone else in any of the locations that we were in. So, like, <laughs> when, we're, when we're in the bar, it's like there's no other patrons in the bar, you know. It's just... And when I saw the footage, I was like, wow, okay. Uh <laughs> But, Todd, you know, Todd was happy, and that's all that mattered. So you made a number of these movies, like Go Fish, which is another amazing film. Right, but Go Fish came through the transom on a VHS tape with a note from 
Rose and Gwen saying, you know, dear Christine Vashon, this is, you know, we're trying to make this movie and we need, we need money to finish it. So they'd already shot it. They'd shot about two thirds of it. Okay. I think I thought that they had shot and they might have represented that they had shot more of it than that. <laughs> but it's a little stretching of the truth. Half to two thirds. Rose would know. She might tell me I'm totally wrong. <laughs> but they had shot enough of it for me to see it. And I immediately was like, wow, if this is what I think it is. It has a garage band feel to it, but it has a charm and a intelligence and a real vision that kind of belies the black and white and the, and I showed it to a lot of, right around that time, there was a whole sort of outcry of like, well, here's all the gay boy movies like Swoon, Poison, The Living End, Looking for Langston, The Hours and the Times, but where's the female equivalent? So I called a bunch of like, you know, distributors like October Films, I think, if they existed yet, maybe they didn't. Strand around? Yeah, but Strand, Strand I knew Marcus didn't have the <laughs> the money to, you know, uh, not at that point. God bless know. him. God, but, I love but, Strand. But, you know, Marcus was him. an early ally. You know, we went to Berlin together. I think it was the first time for both of us. Me with Poison and I think him with The Living End. And, you know, we were both like what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> so I showed it to some uh, Miramax, uh, a new line, and I, I pitched it to them all exactly that way. This is it. This is that female movie uh, the, where it's nobody comes out. It starts in this space where that's already happened, et cetera, and everyone's like, and of course it was all men. It was only men running those companies. Right. And they were like, that's And the, strong, like, like, like headstrong Man. I mean, guys like, who were doing, you know, I, I didn't show it to Harvey, but I showed it to, I can't remember who I showed it to, but somebody who worked under him. Anyway, every single one came back to me and said, yeah, that's not the movie, though. We're not quite sure what you see. Except for John Pearson, who was running a small fund called Islet. And again, I'm sure I'm going to get things wrong. And John is very much the kind of person who nails you when you get things wrong. So I <laughs> ask him to forgive me in advance. I think... We showed him some footage, and he really saw what I saw. And he was like, let's do it. And they, you know, Rose and Gwen ended up shooting more. Uh, it was a long, arduous path to getting the film done, which was partially due not just to their inexperience, but to mine. I was doing it with Tom Kalin, who, uh, you know, we had made Swoon together. Right. We were So we were executive producing Go Fish together. You know, it's not like we knew so much, you know, we were just, we were like, you know, two or three features in at this point. We somehow got it done and took it to the Sundance Film Festival where it like, you know, com was a complete blowout success. Anyway, the end of that story, or there isn't really an end to that story, but I want <laughs> to put an end to that story, which is <laughs> on Pride Day here in New York, Pride always falls either on or right around my daughter's birthday. Mm -hmm. This year, her birthday was 21. Uh, oh, not, my goodness. Not the celebration she anticipated having. Yeah, but I can imagine. On Pride Day, that Sunday, I said, let's watch Go Fish. I haven't seen it in years. And we all watched it together, and it was the first time my daughter was seeing it. And it was a really 
it was a really moving, wonderful experience. It was, uh, the film completely holds up. It still has that charm. It still has that kind of looseness. I guess what I meant to say before is that Tom and I were so, we were almost overly careful. Like the last thing we wanted to do was smash that out of it. Right. In the name of like being more professional or being more, you know, slicker, this is how right? it's done. Yeah. Or yeah, slicker. And I have to say, John Pearson really supported that. He really, he really, you know, embraced that too. So just, I just saw it again a week ago and it is really strong. I love that film. It's just so it's just so joyous. And I think that the the kind of, uh, you know, the grainy black and white kind of aesthetic actually helps to me. It, just, it makes it feel more real for whatever whatever that means. Well, things have sort of come back around because I think when it first came out, people sort of embraced that because it was different. Mm-hmm. Then I feel like there were years where people were like, I don't want to see something like that. That's too hard. You know. That's too difficult to watch. Well, it's post post Blair Witch, really. I mean, after Maybe. Blair Witch, it, it it was just all digital video for like, right, you know, ten right. fifteen years that looked it was handheld and found footage right. and stuff like that. So, uh, and now I feel like young people, like my daughter, are embracing that handmade quality again, that DIYness, that like, oh, it's not slick, it's not an Instagram that somebody's like, you know. Uh, uh, manipulated to the nth degree. So anyway, um, it's the, it was it's the it was analog great flaws, to see. really. I mean, exactly. you're talking about like the exactly. analog kind of grittiness. Exactly. You established Killer Films with Pan Coppler in 1995, and before that, you had already had several films. So, what made you kind of like you know make it uh, official? Was it easier to just kind of, if you're a, a shingle, you could establish that as like a brand? You know, I'd like to say that I was that canny, but I'm not, you know. Oh, take it, I, take it, take it. You were that canny. You were, just go with I it. I think, you know, Pam and I, <laughs> really what happened was we had a run of like three films, one right after the other, or four. I think it was Safe, I Shot Andy Warhol, Stonewall, and Kids. Not necessarily in that order. I think the order might have been, well, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> those movies really shot one right after the other. And it allowed us a kind of stability. We had a production office that didn't close. We had a staff. We had an income. Although if I tell you what I made on those movies, it's almost laughable. But of course, <laughs> at the time, I was like, woohoo, you know. And Pam started out line producing those films. Uh, and we, we got very close in a sort of like symbiotic way. Mm-hmm. It just became very clear that We had different strengths and different weaknesses, but in ways that really fit well together. But on the one hand, doing all those movies, one right after the other, allowed us to actually start developing. And that's, in fact, when we started developing Boys Don't Cry, was during, you know, like between I Shot Andy Warhol and Kids or something. It was, you know, that project got walked in the door by Rose Trochet. And seven years later, we made the movie. But it allowed us the stability to start to think about like, well, you know, this is how the script could be better, which we hadn't up until that point. I mean, we'd certainly worked on the scripts, but in a much more sort of ad hoc fashion. Mm -hmm. Then we started to produce uh, Office Killer, the Cindy Sherman film. Right, um, which is a really interesting movie, by the way. I, I don't know where you can fantastic. find it, but it's, it's it got kind of dumped on when it was released, which was unfortunate because, like, you watch it now, there's a lot going on under the hood of that movie. It is a really oh, yeah. clever, 
very visually interesting, like, you oh, know, yeah. movie. I mean, you know, yeah. especially if you're a fan of Cindy Sherman, which I am. Well, that's sort of, you know, she kind of made it for her fans, <laughs> you know? Yes. So. And, it, um, and it's fun. It's a very fun movie. Oh, it's fantastic. Anyway, on that movie, I just thought, you know, it's time to just be partners and that was that. And we've kind of never looked back. And it certainly has paid off. I mean, one of the things that you talk about in your book, and by the way, we have to talk about your book because your book is some, I will, I'm showing you right now my dog-eared version of Shooting to Kill, which was your first book. Right. But it is absolutely fantastic. If you ever want to know about filmmaking and like what really genuinely goes into it, you just have to read this book. And I literally have all of these little post-it notes like, oh, I want to ask about this. I want to ask about this. But you, you talk about, you know, in this book, mostly when you were in production and in post-production on Velvet Goldmine, which is a movie I'm very familiar with. I saw it when it came out at the what was it? Uh, the Lowe's Third Avenue and 12th Street, I think. I saw it twice oh, there, yeah. I remember. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting movie. I remember the first time I saw it, I didn't even like it the first time I saw it because I was like, this is an overstuffed movie. I don't know what, what that was about, but I had to go see it again. And when I went to see it again, it kind of, for me at least, and very few movies can do this, it unfolded. Like, because I knew what was coming, because I knew where it was, I, I could pick up on all of the stuff. And it's, an, it's a remarkable film, but the production history that you talk about in Shooting to Kill is like, especially with the negative cutter, which is one of the most horrifying film stories I oh, have yeah. ever, ever heard. Do you want to talk about the negative cutter thing? Well, <laughs> or not? Know, we don't I have to. <laughs> the only reason why I won't is because it doesn't happen. People don't cut negative. No, anymore. no, because I'm afraid used it'll to be shoot. irrelevant. Well, I mean, you know. One of the things I do want to talk to you about is workflow and how it's changed with the advent of digital technology. I mean, certainly, like, you know, we were talking about Steenbeck's before. I mean, if you're, if anyone in the audience is not aware of Steenbeck, which I remember having in my apartment when I was doing my first short film in the mid-90s, it's a flatbed thing where you're physically cutting work print. And then at the end of the day, because you get these little edge code things on it, at the end of the day, you bring it to a negative cutter. The negative cutter then looks at your negative, lines it up, and cuts the negative, and then makes an actual print that is like right. a, 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 excuse me, a, an inner positive, which is one generation away from the negative. But what happened on Velvet Goldmine, unfortunately, was the negative cutter aired. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, damaged frames for cuts that were, were scrupulously and meticulously chosen, um, which is, I think, one of the most horrifying things any filmmaker could even dream of. Yeah. But it's, it's, you can't tell. I mean, it's like a great movie. I mean, it's like if, if I hadn't read that, I wouldn't have known. But um, it's not rare, but it's, it's certainly exceptional when people shoot celluloid now. It's all digital. Post-production's been digital for at least 30 years. You know, digital intermediaries came in the 90s, I think, and, and then, you know, we're all digital now. How does this affect kind of people who have a different kind of, like, take on the narrative they want to show? Because you're talking about, like, art house or, or experimental on one side and then mainstream on the other, and you're kind of like, your, your aesthetic has been this, this ground that uses both. It's accessible, but it's very interesting and different. Believe it or not, we still shoot a lot on film. And I'm often the one saying, why are we doing this? Why are we shooting on film? <laughs> uh, which I know is hard to believe, but it's just gotten so difficult because yeah. all the, like, the you know, are... there's no more film labs. Yeah. There's there's Kodak can charge whatever the fuck they want. I mean, it's like yeah. there's a lot of, it isn't easy. 
Yeah. But what's happened, there's a lot of ways in which it's changed how we tell stories. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Agnieszka Holland at the Toronto Film Festival, and she was talking about shooting her movies in Poland and how much support she got from the government. And she could really have the locations that she wanted and the production design, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't make film there. So the film was really expensive. So you really had to think every time you turned on the camera. Right. And every time you decided to make to do another take. And it was the same with us with independent film. It was like, oh my God, he's going to do, we've already done three takes and he wants to do another one. Oh dear God. Like it's just money running through. It was the most expensive thing. You know, and on big budget movies, film was the cheapest thing. On low budget movies, it was the most expensive thing. And that went through to the cutting room as well, because making a cut was a big deal. Like if, you know, the editor decided, all right, or the director, let's see what happens if we cut out of the scene, you know, two seconds earlier. It was, you know, pulling apart tape, splicing, uh, re-taping everything. You had to make a commitment, and then you looked at it, and if it didn't work, you had to put it all back together again. Um, and the sort of, for lack of a better word, prissiness of those edit rooms, of like with the tiny little trims, and the was was crazy. <laughs> and I worked in those edit rooms for a while, for better or worse. So the idea that now you can keep the camera on, kind of with no consequence, you know, when you're shooting digitally. You know, that, and now you just hear, you know, keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling. And that, you know, cutting on an Avid or whatever system you're using, you know, allows you endless possibilities. I feel that it generates, you know, you go into post-production with a massive amount of material, much more than, you know, you, you used to go into it with. And so many possibilities that I think for some filmmakers, it, it almost becomes more of a of a um obstacle because mm-hmm. it's just you know how can you stop you know because there's always another way to try and all you have to do is push a button and you can save what you already did so it's a it, it is interesting how it sort of affected the stories we tell well and it's interesting you you touched on this like the importance of editorial and the importance of the editor in any of these situations i mean certainly you would lean on the editor more if you had all this much more footage right but but you know I, i've read a lot about todd haynes and 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 his work and i think we have to talk about jim lyons who is his uh, editor for his first several films and and his boyfriend up until the end of his life who was you know unbelievably talented and amazing at crafting this narrative these narratives that these complex Absolutely. narratives that he wanted to tell um in fact i think you you have a wonderful picture of him in this book oh probably from poison yeah yeah. We were all so cute back then. <laughs> anyway, you really hit your stride in the late 90s, in the mid to late 90s. You had Velvet Goldmine, but you also had I'm Losing You, Amazing, Boys Don't Cry, absolute landmark Boys Don't Cry, um, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, even uh, a movie that I don't think a lot of people know about, which I thought was great, Series 7, The Contenders. Oh, which, yeah. Which is a crazy, unbelievably cool digital video movie that that is supposedly a reality show from the the near future where people just run around and shoot each other and it's amazing it's also i think Merritt weaver's first film oh was it oh my goodness I think so yeah, that's really cool and then you worked with john waters what was that on a dirty shame what was that like you know that was great i got to work with ted hope who you know was a lot my longtime pal we did we produced todd solon's movie together and john waters's movie together so it's like 
It doesn't get better than that. It was, we shot it in Baltimore with John's, you know, Island of Misfit Toys. <laughs> um, all extraordinary people who had been working with him for years. And it was like, Ted and I got to be temporary members of the band. Um, you know, it was, it was a really wonderful experience. I was going to ask you, of all of your films, which are the ones that stand out? But I've heard you bring up Boys Don't Cry a couple of times. Is that really kind of one of your, your landmark favorite kind of movies? Well, let me just say, honestly, I don't have a favorite. And I'm mm -hmm. not just saying that. Whenever I see, you know, there's certain movies that I feel didn't get the recognition they deserved. Oh, tell me which. Because well, I, like, I would love to know. I shot Andy Warhol, which it's a I great still movie. think is like, you know, one of the best movies of its time. And I, you know, I think people still discover it, but it hasn't reached the sort of cult status that I think it, it, it deserves. Well, I think that Mary um, Heron's work has always kind of been, I mean, you, you especially after American Psycho, you look back over her, her body of work. And it's amazing. I shot Andy Warhol has that amazing performance by Lily Taylor. Though, oh, yeah. It's just like astonishing. You can't even look away. And it was yep. shot like, uh, if I remember correctly, Ellen Curris. One Ellen Curris shot it. One of the things that you have done consistently is use women uh, at behind the scenes, like, you know, in these in these roles. Mayor's Alberti, of course, shot uh, Velvet Goldmine and probably some other stuff. I don't have a list in front of she me. She shot I just, Poison. Uh, and she shot happiness. Unbelievable. And so I did want to ask you, like, about, like, you know, hiring women in, in, in these roles where, like, that have been traditionally men, because you can count before the 1990s, probably on one hand, female cinematographers, for at least ones that I'm aware of, you know, because, I mean, it was mostly studio movies before, before the 80s, when, when independent yeah. films kind of blew up. I know we talk a lot about diversity in front of the camera uh, and not maybe as much, you know, about diversity behind the camera. And I mean, not just uh, directors, but I just remember how daunting it was when we started doing our first union movies and how overwhelmingly white and male the crews were right. and how hard we really did try. And, I, and again, I feel like it was almost... I don't feel like it was like we had this mandate of like, we're going to find, we're going to find these, you know, female DPs. You know, we, we've, we were incredibly lucky to discover Ellen in, in you know, in, and, and I kind of twisted her arm and made her shoot swoon. Um, and then, you know, Mary East was a extraordinary DP who had been doing a lot of documentary. Mm -hmm. And then they brought with them, they were, they were very cognizant of mentoring young women uh, on their teams as camera assistants and, and gaffers and best boys, etc. So, you know, it's not, I mean, you know, at the time it felt like we were barely making a dent, but it started to shift things a little, you know, the fact that you could name a couple yeah. of women who were shooting, shooting movies was, was, you know, f from one year to the next was sort of extraordinary. Want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories 
while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. Tell me about Boys Don't Cry. Like, you know, Kim Pierce and you and were there any other people like involved in writing it? Like as it as it developed? Oh yeah. I mean, eventually Kim worked on the script with Andy Beenan. Mm -hmm. And that's what got it to the place, you know, to the extraordinary script that we shot. But in those years, you know, when Kim when we first found Kim or she found us or however it worked out. She was making a student film for Columbia and Brandon was, was fairly newly murdered and the, the murderers hadn't even been put on trial yet. Oh, so wow. she was working on a, a project that used different names, you know, sort of fictionalized it a bit. Mm -hmm. And I took the footage from her student film, which was... Okay, it wasn't, to, to be honest, you know, it wasn't like, oh my God, this is the most talented person in the world. But the combination of the footage and Kim herself, who was extraordinarily articulate about her vision, made us feel an, an extraordinary amount of confidence in what she would be able to do. Over then, you know, I tried to, I tried to get the financing to finish the student film as a feature, and that people were just like it was you know and in all reality it wasn't really strong enough but that time then Kim took to go back to she went to to the to the actual trials themselves she met with the um you know with with a lot of the people in Brandon's life Lana in particular and just honed and honed and honed her craft and the story until when we were finally ready to go into production, she had something that was, you know, a million miles away from what she had first walked into our office with. But in a lot of ways, it wasn't because it also still had that same verve and passion. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, look, again, you never, you, you know, you, you don't start out thinking like I'm making a masterpiece. But I do think that as soon as we saw the sparks fly with Hillary's performance, we were a little if she, Kim and Hillary, both get this right, this is gonna be something extraordinary. Was that your first time at the Oscars that year? No, we had <laughs> gone to the Oscars with Velvet Goldmine. Oh, that's right, it was the costumes, correct? So or am, I, am I wrong? I forgot. No, you're totally right. Velvet Goldmine, very unexpectedly, <laughs> got a costume nomination and Sandy Powell was also nominated for Shakespeare in Love. Right. So uh, at that, back in those days, Miramax would have this party the night before the Oscars. And if you were a nominee, you had to go because that's where you got your tickets. Okay. So it was sort of like, you know, the gun to your head. <laughs> so I don't think Todd and I went because, you know, we weren't nominees. But we were in L.A. and... We were sort of, a, and I think we had gotten a lot of Independent Spirit nominations. We were kind of along for the ride. 
And I said to Sandy, so because it's two nominations, do you get four tickets? And she was like, no, I asked, it's only two. And then she came back from her, from the Oscar party and we were all staying at the Chateau Marmont, which was, you know, not a fancy place to stay. It was a cool <laughs> place to stay, but it was not a fancy place to stay. And Todd said, oh, let me see what Oscar tickets look like. So she opened the envelope and in fact, she did have four tickets. <gasps> oh my God. So and she was like, oh my God, you and Todd have to come. <laughs> so, uh, Got to get did. a dress, right? Like like a gown or something immediately. I don't think I wore a gown. Um, <laughs> but but the fun thing was Whoopi Goldberg was the host, and it was the year they were celebrating costume design. Oh. So she came out at one point in Johnny Reese Meyer's outfit with the angel wings. I remember this. Yes. Uh, to the you know to the band playing some Muzak version of Needle in the Camel's Eye by Brian Eno. So, and it was Sandy's first Oscar. She didn't win for Velvet oh Goldmine. God. She won for Shakespeare in Love. Right. But she basically thanked Velvet Goldmine. So to this day, most people I know are like, oh yeah, her first Oscar was for Velvet Goldmine. At the, I can't remember, you know, I guess it was at Dorothy Chandler. And they had a little bar underneath, like a sort of underground bar that almost felt like the boiler room or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a phone booth in it. And this was pre-everyone having cell phones. Or if you did have one, they were so giant, you certainly couldn't fit them into your Oscar purse. And I, you know, I used my, you know, AT&T calling card <laughs> For, so that Sandy could call her mother and tell her that she'd won. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, yeah. by the way, I cannot believe you just brought up the boiler room. You don't know how many synapses just fired in my brain that have not been <laughs> fired for so long. Because I lived in New York until about 2005, and uh, the boiler room was a place that I was at uh, an embarrassing number of times. Well, it's still there. Yeah, I, I actually visited New York not too long ago and I was like wow aside from the digital jukebox which used to have records and now it just has mp3s nothing has changed in this place it's amazing no. uh one thing I did want to ask you about boys don't cry and, and this treads on some sensitive stuff yeah if you made boys don't cry today could you have cast a cis woman in it I think the better question is or the better response is if we made Boys Don't Cry today, there would have been so many extraordinary trans actors to choose from. Right. That's something that people now think is obtainable, to the, that trans people think they can do. I mean, look, I'm not going to make any excuses for Boys Don't Cry. I, I, I'm very proud of it. Um, I don't think you need to make I, excuses. I mean, no, certainly. No, but I, I know that we, we wrestled with that at the time without even really knowing how to articulate it. Right. You know what I mean? We knew how important the story was. We knew that getting it right was really critical. And we soul searched a lot about how to, you know, but it was, it was a different time about how to involve the trans community. And again, it was pre-internet, so it wasn't always clear how to locate those communities, et cetera, right. et cetera. Look, I think if we made it today, without question, we'd have this wealth of extraordinary trans talent. And uh, at the time, it was, you know, that what it, it was a different time. Right. So. Well, would it have been more difficult to finance in, in that case? Or is this, is this just I kind mean, of like. Look, again, it's apples to oranges. I think, you know, I get asked this question all the time 
by my students, you know, or when I go speak at, you know, I, I teach at SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, I run an MFA program there, but I go and speak at virtually every other, you know, film program in America, it feels like sometimes. <laughs> and students are, they, you know, they're always, they always are like, what's the path? What's the path? Right. How do I get there? And, you know, there just isn't one. It's always the exception. Yeah. It's always, you just don't, we weren't getting any pressure from our financiers when we made Boys Don't Cry necessarily to cast a star because we really were adamant that the audience should feel the same way the people in Nebraska felt. Like, who is this person? You know, you didn't want someone coming onto the screen where you went like, oh, okay, that's this actress. She must have like strapped down her boobs or what have you. I did want to ask you about, like, you know, you look over the directors that you've worked with, a lot of gay men. Is this a personal kind of, like, thing for you? Do you just get along very well with gay men? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, it's so easy to assign intent with hindsight. Right, right. You know, when, when Todd and I started working together, there was a real meeting of the minds, but in a way where I just felt, especially after seeing Superstar for the first time as a rough cut, I thought, this is it. This is, I had a real epiphany. This is the kind of filmmaking I want to be involved in. And I was very, you know, you have to remember New York in the late 80s, early 90s, it was all about the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And we were all together in this, like, I mean, it's very hard to describe to somebody who didn't live through it. And I have tried sometimes to some of the younger people I work with, especially younger gay men, who are, re- who are genuinely curious and really want to know, like, and sometimes romanticize that period a little bit. But we were so, it was such a period of such extreme highs and lows. There was, you know, there was so much, there were so many people dying, so many people dying. Like this kind of, you know, at the weekly act up meeting and you'd be like, where's, where's Brian? And someone would be like, oh, Oh, and that was like, and that was that. And then almost worse was these, you know, the families from out of town that would come in and swoop somebody away, which is kind of what happened to Bill, uh, to Bill Sherwood. And, um, and then you just would never see them again, you know? Um, and you wouldn't know what happened. And that, it was just devastating. It was just such a crazy time. So it bred this feeling of like, no one cares about us. This, our country wants us to die. I mean, look, I know we're going through some, you know, this kind of craziness with coronavirus and the pandemic. Yeah. But what we had during the AIDS crisis was a feeling, quite frankly, that the government was like, you know what? Good. Like, this disease is going to get rid of exactly the people we need to get rid of. The gays, the drug users, you know, what they weren't quite saying was, you know, people of color, people in prison, etc. And it was so, it was so extraordinarily all-consuming and this sense of like, if we don't tell our stories, nobody is going to. Like, we could just all be dead and no one will know who we were. 
And there was a sense of urgency about the filmmaking, uh, you know, about Todd's movies, Tom's movie, Tom Kalen's movies, Greg Araki's. So I was with a lot of gay men and a lot of gay women at the time and a lot of queer people. I mean, that's when we started to call ourselves queer. And that's when, you know, the whole notion of transgender rights started to form in my mind, at least, you know, this whole notion of like, there's, there's all these different gradations and notions of what makes somebody queer, but we just felt like we all were, you know, we were all on the firing line. Yeah, I, I missed that by the skin of my teeth. I came to NYU in 1990. You know, basically, we were drilled into our heads, like, if you do anything without a condom, you're going to die. So right. we were just basically, I mean, you know, which is good. Which because, is its own thing. I, I mean, it, that's it like... It was. And I have to say, you know, like, when PrEP came around, that was a very interesting moment because I didn't actually realize how traumatized I had been about just sex, just normal, healthy, positive sex. It was like suddenly, with that off the table, I was like, wait a second... I didn't realize right. what a weight that had had on me. Right. So in some, I mean, look, you can argue, you can, you know, argue about the gradations of that till the cows come home. I think for us, it was this like we're coming out of the '80s, the '70s and the '80s. You know, I graduated high school in 1979, and in New York City, and it was like we were embracing this extraordinary downtown life. Debbie Harry, John Sex, RuPaul, like the, you know, this, and then this sort of like this sinister thing started to happen that was specifically attacking our community. And then, but I also think like for somebody your age that you didn't get to even have that. And then it was just like, okay, you're gay, you're in the closet. If you have sex, you will die. Um, so maybe you better just stay in the closet. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, there, I feel like, you know, for people in my, you know, and we're talking only like a five-year period, really, because mm -hmm. the Triple Cocktail came out in 1996. Right. So there was, there was this period between like the late 80s and before 1996 when it genuinely, there was a, a couple years when it genuinely became a chronic condition that could be managed for the most part. Right. And people, it was not necessarily anymore a death sentence after that moment. Right. Um, but, but there was that period where the, the AIDS deaths were at a peak. Um, and if and if anybody has, wants to see a film that I thought just blew me the hell away, BPM. It is a French movie, and yes. it it just it utterly <laughs> destroyed me. And I wasn't even a part of that. I just I was peripheral to that. Right. Um, I don't even know where I was going. I just got all moved by talking about BPM. <laughs> but it's like, but basically, yeah. I mean, there was this period where like we understood that like anything we did was potentially lethal. And so, you know, you're in your early 20s and you want to, like, date guys and you want to have sex yep. and you want to learn what you like and don't like and all that stuff. And maybe you even want to be a little bit of a slut. I actually think that for most gay men, it's probably a healthy thing to just go through a, a bit of a slut phase for a little bit. Um, that was all basically off the table or extremely managed. Right. And um, it's hard to kind of, like, imagine that now in the world of prep where everything is like, you know you know, the worst thing you can get is, you know, something and, you know, you get a shot and you're done with it as yep. long as you're on prep. Yep. At any rate, um, one of the things I do want to ask you about, uh, you know, just for your own personal philosophy, like, what do you look for in a project? Like, when you take stuff on, like, what is it that, like, fires you, you up? You know, it's a, it's a combination of 
does this script feel truly original, provocative? Does it feel zeitgeisty? Is the director, you know, sometimes we used to get mostly scripts from writer-directors and now frequently, much more frequently, we will develop from a book or an idea or uh, an article and then find a director. But, you know, since we still are very director-driven, you know, is the director somebody that we feel can go the distance with us? You know, I used to say, I wish we had a test that we could, you know, give to see if a director was you know, crazy or not. Oh my God, because this would be and, the Vashon test. Could, could you I do finally, that? That would be amazing. Well, I'll tell you what it is. We finally decided it would just be one question, which is, do you have a relationship with another living thing? <laughs> because actually that's a real tell. Because often the directors that are the ones that are the most difficult to work with are the ones who, you know, they don't have a solid friend group, they don't have strong, you know, they just like, sometimes I'm like, if you even have a plant that you've kept alive, <laughs> like we're in it, we're, we're good. So, um, so that's part of it. And then there's this kind of like ephemeral, like I almost don't know how to, it's, it's a makeability. Like, is this project makeable? Will it attract a strong uh, actor in the lead role? Like, uh, you know, is it that kind of fireworky part that will get somebody who, you know, wants to try something that they haven't done before? Uh, is it about something that feels in the air of the moment? Uh, does the director have some kind of credential that gets us over the top? All those things that I kind of can't put my finger on. You know, now we get projects and, and we have, oh, and then the other thing is, you know, is it theatrical? Mm -hmm. What makes it theatrical? What is that secret sauce that makes it not a great story you might see on Amazon or Netflix, you know, uh, but that you have to see in the theater? What is it about it that will give you that sense of urgency? I mean, look, you know, what's going to happen after, you know, we start going back to the movie theaters like that will probably have shifted again because we have we will have consumed so much, uh, you know, and I'm grateful for for the content I've been able to consume. It's kept all of our minds off of, you know, all the insanity around us. But what's that going to do to our habits and what we view and what we think we should view in the theater? What what have you seen recently that you like? Um, I mean, look, I I watch a lot of content. I did everything that everybody else did at the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic from Tiger King to unorthodox, etc. Now I go down a lot of like British crime procedural rabbit holes. I, I you know, sometimes I'm really watching just for escapism. Right. Um, we have our own movie that came out a few weeks ago, Shirley. Yes. That Neon released, which is a terrific film. Josephine Decker directed it's got it. Got like a ninety-seven on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Something insane. Some like it's really. It's a really good movie. I can't wait. It's on Hulu right now, correct? It's on Hulu. So you know, then I. But I'm also you know I'm human like everyone else, and sometimes all I can stomach is like office reruns. Yeah. I, mine know. is Murder, She Wrote reruns from the 80s. Yeah, I've heard people are getting it's, into that. I, I don't I, know why. And people really are like, you know, the writing is better than you think. Well, and I mean, the first two seasons, it's it's actually pretty ingenious, but it gets a little bit, oh, you missed this one thing that they said? Well, that's that's what <laughs> that's, right. that's how she knew that the guy did right. it. Um, 
what directors or filmmakers in general, like if you see their name attached to a project, you're like, I have to see that. I really want to see that. I mean, it doesn't have to be comprehensive. You don't have to worry about leaving know. somebody off. You know, so many. I mean, a lot of them are, are directors I've worked with, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Daughters of the Dust when it first came out oh, yeah. in New York City and being so profoundly, not just moved by the movie, but moved by its audacity. And, and I, I'm just, you know, uh, um, she's still somebody I'm a little in awe of, Julie Dash. Julie Dash, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I'm not so good at those kinds of listicles. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I kind of know it when I see it. Um, I, re- you know, I have these moments that, you know, I, I grew up in New York City. I could go to the movies on my own from the time I was eight or nine years old because that's how we rolled back in the early 70s. Yeah. And I saw a lot of movies on my own because sometimes we would just go see whatever was there. Right. I saw... The 400 Blows, a very cliche movie for people to love, but oh, it's still I great, love it though. nonetheless. Yeah. You know, when I was 12 or 13 and I had that experience of like, I didn't know this was what a movie could be. But then I had that same experience in many ways with the Poseidon Adventure, you know, where I was also like, I didn't, wow. <laughs> <laughs> they turned that ship upside down. That, that, that movie holds up. That movie holds up. Totally. It's got a great cast. It's like that. Totally. It's between that and the Towering Inferno. Well, all those disaster movies, airplane, not not airport. airplane, airport. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although airplane too, I suppose. Airplane is. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know that was like I didn't discriminate in those. You know, I uh, the movies Oliver had a profound effect on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my s- older sister was supposed to take me to see Oliver, and instead took me to see. Uh, 2001. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I was, you know, seven or eight years old, and I was like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> she was like, you don't want to go see that kid's movie. And I was like, no, I do. That's what I thought we were doing. I have the coloring book, you know? It'd be a very so, different coloring book for 2001. Yeah, she was like, we're going to go see something good. Um, and you can imagine I sat there, you know, like, uh, so... I also weirdly became obsessed with um, the movie Alice's Restaurant. Oh, yeah, Arlo Guthrie. Yeah, I yeah. don't know why. And, um, and uh, you know, um, watched the movie over and over again. Uh, although, you know, I couldn't have watched it over and over again. How could I have? I listened to the record over and oh, over again. Oh, okay. So, you know... My daughter can watch things over and over again. You couldn't in the 70s. So, you know. So one thing I've asked every single guest on the season of The Outcast is one question uh, to which the, the one answer that cannot be given is just do it. What advice would you give up-and-coming filmmakers right now? First and foremost, I, going back to that idea of the path that people think, you know, when people say to me, how did you do it? How did you do it? Like, I want to know exactly how you did it. And it's like, well, I did it in such a different time. It doesn't count because things are so different. But the one thing I would say is I feel like a lot of young people now who want to get into the world of content creation, which is really a better way to describe it than filmmaking because there isn't a whole lot of film involved, <laughs> uh, is um, they get very set on... I want to know the path to be a director, and if something isn't on the path, or I want to know the path to be a writer, 
And I think it's really critical to walk through the doors that open for you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get on set really badly. I graduated from college and I wanted to be on a film set. And I went to uh, a organization that is long gone called Young Filmmakers, which was on Rivington Street when Rivington Street was, you know, uh, a war zone. Um, and, uh, but there was this place where you could, you know, rent out camera equipment. And, um, uh, and it was sort of like, it was like a collective. You joined mm-hmm. and you had the, and you had the, um, uh, and you had the right to rent out, you know, the, 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 right. like probably the one 16 millimeter camera that they had. <laughs> um, and there was a billboard up and there was this woman, Jill Godmelo had posted a note that said, you know, we're about to start shooting this, uh, this movie and we're looking for production assistance. So I tore off the number and I called her up and she said, oh, that's from like six months ago. Like we, we shot already. But if you're interested in working in the edit room, you could do that. And that was like a million miles from what I thought I wanted to do. But I was like, well, what else do I have going on? So I, I think it's like get into the world of what you want to do, you know, because one of the other things I think is really really has to be said is there's so many ways to be creative in the world of content creation and you go into it thinking it's about directing it's about writing it's not really about producing people don't romanticize that very much but nor should they but there's so many ways to be creative and I when I teach and I bring like costume designers DPs casting directors production designers to my class, I, my first uh, question always is, how did you decide that you wanted to become who you are now? And they always, the, the answer always is, you know, funny you should ask. Like, I thought I wanted to, to do X, but because of these various experiences, because of being open, I ended up realizing that my real passion was the thing I'm doing now. The only person who completely subverted that was a casting director who I brought in, which you'd think, like, no one thinks they want to be a casting director because you don't know (laughs) what it is. And she was like, oh, I knew. Like, I was recasting Wizard of Oz when I was five years old. I was like, you know what would have been really good? You know, and so she was the exception that proves the rule. Well, this has been an amazing conversation and one that I won't soon forget. Thank you so much, Christine Gashan. It's not often that I can talk to my uh, people that I've looked up to for so many years. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time.